we're finding that our identities don't fit in with the popular kids or whatever group of kids, uh, then maybe we see ourselves as being a, a little bit more outsider, uh, like the, the heavy metal kids. And so we start connecting with that. Greetings humans, and welcome to Lefteris Ask Science edition number 22. I am Lefteris, that annoying guy that calls academics and scientists and asks them questions until I understand what, how, and why they do what they do. This is going to be a special episode for me because we'll be talking about music. Music has been a passion of mine, not as a musician, but as an avid listener for many, many years. More specifically, we're going to talk about heavy metal music. What's the psychology of heavy metal music? What is the culture of the community? And how people with disabilities are represented in it? To help me answer these questions, I had a chat with the psychologist Dr. Kyle Messick that received his PhD from the University of Coventry. Before we go on with the show, as always, we have to have some housekeeping. If you enjoy the show, please subscribe to it and share it with your friends that might like it too. Follow me on Twitter at Lefteris underscore asks. And now we also have an Instagram page under the same name. I know, fascinating. Additionally, I have a weekly newsletter where I share my favorite news from the world of science and academia. I have small explanations and link to the research for anyone who wants to find out more. If you like that, go to the show notes and click that link to subscribe to the newsletter. Lastly, in the show notes, you'll find a donation link just in case you want to. On with the show now, let's meet Dr. Kyle Messick. My name is Kyle J. Messick. I'm a psychologist that studies heavy metal music and culture. I have other research interests as well, but that's generally uh, what I, I do most prominently. I've uh, received my PhD, so I am a doctor of psychology from Coventry University in England, where I worked under a couple of professors that also work at the University of Oxford. Uh, and I also have a master's from Ball State University in social psychology. When I think about psychologists, the first image that comes to mind is somebody lying on a couch, talking, and listing all the emotional problems that the relationship with their parents had. But obviously, that's not really accurate. So, the first easy question here is, what does it mean to study heavy metal music from a psychological perspective? Well, whenever we're talking psychology, we're trying to get an idea of what's the experience like, what are the behaviors like, uh, what sort of things are unique or different about this subculture, what are the cultural norms. Uh, for me, some of the big things I look at as a social psychologist is I want to understand what are the psychological functions that are fulfilled in this culture. So they, they find a source of social relatedness that can connect to other people. A lot of uh, heavy metal fans uh, use music and the sort of communal bonding stuff for mood maintenance. So if we're feeling down, we might listen to music, feel better. We need to get motivated. We listen to heavy metal music and then we can go complete whatever our task is. And then I've been branching off into many other areas, too. For example, uh, heavy metal has always been a very controversial type of music because of the, the theme. So we've got very taboo themes. We, we talk about mental health struggles. We talk about death and uh, very uncomfortable things. Uh, we've got a whole genre, death metal, that just talks about murder and these things that make people uncomfortable. And so one of the things I really look at then is what does it mean in the context of death metal? Well, what, what do these visuals mean? Uh, and so one of my most recent studies I've done has looked at 
how is violent imagery and lyrics processed in heavy metal music culture and particular then within death metal culture because we've got brutal death metal styles that almost seem to fetishize uh, doing violent acts towards women, uh, particularly sexual acts. And so I wanted to see if that translates then into actual misogynistic beliefs or is it more like a horror movie sort of thing like that uh, where we're, we're just trying to uh, do something really horrific and not necessarily say that this is a good thing or embrace this or endorse this. And what I found was that uh, it is not the case that people that love death metal are somehow less less moral or uh, really love, uh, they're not more misogynistic. I, I've measured this in implicit ways and explicit ways. It, it, it's not the case that uh, they endorse uh, doing anything terrible to women, domestic abuse or anything like that. Uh, with one exception though, so uh, death metal fans can love that music, not have a problem with the images, with the lyrics, but there's a subgroup then in there that says, uh, I pretty much only just love lyrics that are about uh, brutal acts towards women. I only love those type of album covers. Then that subset, uh, not people that just love death metal because of the music, but maybe they're really drawn to those lyrics and the, those album covers only. Uh, within that group, I was seeing higher levels of misogynistic beliefs. So for the most part, there's no problem with uh, enjoying lyrics like that, enjoying uh, death metal or, or types of heavy metal music with uh, violent themes, but there, there might be a subgroup in there that maybe enjoy that stuff a little bit too much. Right off the bat, we start with a lot of information. Liking a thing is not an issue, except when you like it a bit too much. Before we dive deeper in the findings of Dr. Messick's work, I wanted to find out how does a psychologist do research? What type of data does he collect? So generally people either do things in what's called through quantitative methods or qualitative methods. So I, I like to do mixed methods, so a combination of both, because qualitative is better at explaining individual differences between people, where quantitative is better at uh, seeing averages uh, across large groups. So what quantitative methods would be is uh, getting number sort of scales from people, uh, filling out one to seven Likert scales to say, yes, I strongly agree, I strongly disagree with this, or even taking things like physiological measurements. Uh, but the idea is you're, you're getting number sort of data, and then you can run that through Sykes' version of statistics and say that, uh, okay, here's what we see is the relationship, here's what's causing this. Uh, whereas qualitative methods, that's the more interview sort of approach where you talk to individuals, you're not so worried about number crunching, and you're trying to get deeper into what their experience is like. And so I like the combination of those two things where you can say, okay, here's what the overall trends look like. Now let's talk to individuals and see what does that actually look like in the terms of their daily lives. Either questionnaires or physiological responses, like an EEG of the brain to specific stimuli, is one method of getting data. The other one is long interviews with people until you're satisfied with the discussion you've had. Now, for the first type of data, it is easy to understand that the more data, the better. It's easier to identify trends, and your conclusions are more substantiated with more data. However, when it comes to interviews, it is a bit harder to understand when you're good with the data you have. But of course, there are specific methods in doing the interviews. 
the key thing with qualitative data is you want to have open-ended questions. You never want to lead somebody. So as scientists, we want to be as objective as possible. Let them tell the story. Let them talk about their experiences. Because if you ask leading questions, then you're manipulating the data. So we don't want that. So the ideal sort of interview would be to try to just poke and prod a little bit, try to get somebody to open up because you do want rich sort of answers. So the, what's, what is not ideal in the case of an interview is uh, if you're just answering or asking questions and they just quickly answer, yes, no, not really. Yeah, sometimes I feel like that. Uh, like you can't really do anything with that. So you want them to feel comfortable with you. You want them to open up. And that's also why we, we order then with these interviews in, in a way. So they uh, first start answering things they're very comfortable with. And then if you do want to get to deeper sort of things that might be more uncomfortable to talk, uh, talk about, uh, then you ask those towards the end of the interview after you've established this connection. So uh, it's just like you would maybe in a therapeutic setting. You want to get the person comfortable with the, uh, the, this rep repertoire that you're uh, connecting with them. And so the heavier questions that they definitely wouldn't open up about if you started with those, you ask those a little bit later after you start to establish a connection. With interviews, you can't generalize and make statements about groups of people. That's what quantitative methods are for when you can have hundreds, if not thousands of people answering a questionnaire. However, there is a big overlap between the two methods and how one method can help the other. And what I use interviews for is to say, here's what sort of the theoretical data says. Maybe here's what some of the quantitative data says. Now let's see if that's confirmed by individual people. So I, I've used qualitative interviews in a, in a couple of different contexts. Most recently, uh, I've already had one piece published on what the, uh, what the experience of having uh, mental health struggles is in the metal, mu metal music community. And then I uh, conducted a couple more interviews to look at the experience of disability, uh, dis slash ability in the uh, metal music community. And for both of those, what I, uh, I find uh, through the context of those interviews, it's consistent with some of the stuff I've talked about in, in terms of mood maintenance and uh, social relatedness in my quantitative work, is that it can be a more welcoming environment for these individuals. So for a couple of reasons. So one, uh, metal music culture talks about these taboo themes that make us uncomfortable. So things like mental health struggles, uh, the, the general public might try to hide that in a closet, so to speak. We don't want to talk about that. It makes us uncomfortable. But what metal music does is it, it talks about things like schizophrenia and mental health crises and depression. And then uh, also it, it uh, embraces disability in a sort of different way, too. And so when I say embraces and talks about these themes, this does not mean that metal's talking about them accurately. So it'll talk about something like schizophrenia and it'll be in the context of, oh, someone's going insane and doing all these horrible things. It won't be an accurate sort of depiction. But what I find is that, uh, and what these people said in these interviews too, is just the fact that these things are being talked about in heavy metal music culture kind of destigmatizes them. And so that's one of the facets that makes them feel more welcomed in the heavy metal community is there's already a dialogue there. It, it, it's not uh, accurate uh, about how they depict them, uh, but uh, it's already has more of a dialogue than the general public is. And then combine that with this idea of outsider mentality. So heavy metal music is largely a group of people that feel like outsiders. They're proud of being outsiders. They don't mind looking different, sounding different, acting different than the general public. 
And so this is something that a lot of people with mental health struggles and also disability already experience. They're treated by other people as different and they feel like outsiders because of that. And so then we have heavy metal and they say, hey, we're a group of all outsiders. If you're an outsider, come on over here. You're welcome. Then they find a, a better welcoming environment. So that's why we see a lot of people with mental health struggles and a lot of people with disabilities uh, saying that they're lifelong, very happy metal fans because that's somewhere they get embraced. Uh, they go to the grocery store. People look at them funny, but they go to a metal concert and people don't care so much about if they've got a disability or, or if they've act a little bit quirky, uh, if they're an autistic individual or something, because they just get embraced because they have that sh common love for the music. And, and that sort of transcends all of these things that uh, are, are difficulties that other people would judge them upon. Maybe it's because I'm part of the community, so I can't really remove my bias. And I'm also an engineer, so verbalizing these things is a bit trickier for me. But being part of a heavy metal community feels different. I was wondering if Dr. Messick, from his experience in both researching the community and as a member of it himself, has a better way to explain why rock and heavy metal creates that special bond between the people. A big part of that is just uh, this sense of community, this outsider status. A lot of us get into metal because it's different. Maybe we don't feel like we fit in in popular cliques and stuff. Uh, a lot of us, if we don't get into metal through our, our families, we start getting into it around adolescence when we're developing our own identities, our own sense of the self. And so if we're finding that our identities don't fit in with the popular kids or whatever group of kids, uh, then maybe we see ourselves as being a, a little bit more outsider uh, like the, the heavy metal kids. And so we start connecting with that. And so it really just ties in with identity. Where do you feel like you fit in? And for a lot of people, just uh, heavy metal is somewhere we fit in. And also we might relate to the music. Uh, it's, it's a genre that has embraces many different sort of extremes. So we've got the slowest sort of tempos in music and things like doom metal. And then we've got the uh, fastest extremes in grindcore and death metal. And so if somebody really connects with uh, adrenaline fueling sort of music, they find a connection there. If they really like things chill and slow and heavy, there's, there's a connection there. And then there's progressive stuff, too, all kinds of things. So there's types of music that anyone can connect to in, in metal. And then it's just whether or not they uh, connect to that idea of uh, heavy metal culture's uh, niche sort of uh, outsider status uh, mentality. And, and that then if they do connect to that, they we find that a lot of metal fans are very dedicated. So metal fans in general listen to metal music more than other types of people uh, listen to their preferred types of music. Like we love the music, we're very dedicated to it. We're dedicated to the identity. Uh, another thing we see is that people need to wear sort of metal clothing just to feel comfortable. This was sort of a, a minor question in one of my studies, but I found that uh, people will feel uncomfortable out in public if they're not wearing like a metal shirt or something. And I, I saw an example of this too. One of my buddies got married. He wore the tuxedo and all this like usual. Uh, but the second the reception hit, he, he took off his uh, dress shirt to reveal the Iron Maiden shirt that was below. So uh, we'll follow cultural norms, but a lot of us just feel better if we still have that connection to metal because it's so important to our identity. And some people will even have like... Uh, patches and things of different bands on their tuxedos when they get married. A lot of these sort of different behaviors are battle jackets people wear. Uh, so it's very important 
to who people are and when we form our identities. So it's more common that people get into metal around adolescence rather than just stumbling into it, say, in their 50s or something like that, where identity is already established. One of the topics of Dr. Messick's research and in our discussion is the representation of disabilities in rock and heavy metal music. The history and the way that disabilities have been presented in metal music is weirder than you think. The relationship between disability and metal can seem a little strange to the outside world because when we go back to the early days of metal, so the, the 60s or even the early days of punk rock music, what we, we saw was a real embracing of this idea of freak show spectacle. So this is something we kind of see in horror movies too. In other words, they're, they're using disability for creative effect to try to say this is a, a horrific version of the, the human experience. And so they really embraced that. Uh, and so what that would look like then to the outsider is that, uh, that we're uh, really trying to take advantage of uh, the, these individuals then, the, the way we're depicting them, uh, we're exploiting them essentially. But uh, when we actually look into this, then uh, the, the, the question we have to ask ourselves is, okay, that's what it looks like, that they're exploiting these people for entertainment. Uh, but is it the case that that's how those people feel in that community? And what we, we see is, uh, although we're not necessarily doing the, the same sort of exploitation things we did before, is that uh, the badge of freak in the context of metal and punk music was a badge of honor. So to be a freak was to be an outsider. So back to this outsider mentality thing. And so that was something that connected people to that identity of uh, punk rock or of metal. So it's not necessarily the case that it's what it looks like on the outside that we're just exploiting these individuals because once again, uh, we're embracing this idea of disability, not in an accurate way, maybe not in a way that uh, looks wholesome or anything to the outsider, but we're, we're still embracing it in a way that kind of destigmatizes it, reduces the taboo of talking about these experiences of disability. And so then with this idea that, uh, a lot of people in punk and metal used to call themselves very openly freaks because they felt like social outsiders. That still encompassed people with genuine disabilities. So it wasn't just about uh, having that as the aesthetic, but uh, also having that uh, uh, being embraced in the terms of lyrics and album covers and even using people with disabilities on stage is, is another level of that freak show spectacle. What it did was made everybody in those communities uh, comfortable with people with disabilities. So maybe at first it, it was just exploitation to try to say these are the extremes of the human experience. But then after a while, showing that over and over just shows that uh, punk rock and metal then, well, what they're saying then is we're, we're comfortable with disability. We've been doing this for a while in, our, uh, in terms of our aesthetic and our stage show. And so now those people are welcome in those communities because uh, although it might not have been the a, a sort of nice, wholesome depiction of people with disability in the experience, it, it did have a depiction. And because of that, it made it a more comfortable sort of environment for those individuals over time, particularly because of how it's contextualized as embracing anything that's different. If you're different in the terms of metal and punk, that's good. That's not seen as taboo like it is in the uh, general populace. There's other things that are, that are important there too, particularly in the case of when we were talking about people with disabilities and mental health struggles, and that's the idea of representation. So when we talk about uh, 
disability and uh, mental health struggles. We, we maybe don't think of a lot of people on television and in the media as uh, being disabled. Uh, you can't maybe name a lot of actors that have disabilities and representation is important. So whatever level of representation we have in the media is something we connect to and we say, okay, I, I can maybe strive to be like this. This person was successful despite having my obstacles. So I, I can look up to them. And representation is something we have in heavy metal in terms of uh, mental health struggles and disability. So in the example of disability, uh, Jeff Becerra, the frontman of uh, thrash metal band slash death metal band Possessed, uh, he received an injury at one point in his life. And ever since then, he's been bound to a wheelchair. He's the vocalist of the band, but he'll still uh, roll out there on, on the stage and belt out very aggressive, deep guttural vocals. And so what somebody then uh, that has a disability might see then is, oh, wow, this is one of the most established metal bands ever. Uh, nobody really faults him for this disability at all. Uh, they embrace him for his mu musical talent and not for whatever struggles he overcome, but it's still over uh, uh, inspiring that uh, despite having a disability, he could still be a prolific member of the metal community that inspires other individuals. And then same sort of thing with mental health struggles. Uh, so one thing we, we see in heavy metal lyrics a lot and themes is talking about these things. Like there's a, a, a lot of different metal bands just with band names that reflect some of these things like schizophrenia. There's a lot of bands named schizophrenia. Uh, and so then people can start to connect with that. And not only that, but these musicians can be very open about their mental health struggles. So in the example of schizophrenia, when I interviewed a few different people, that have schizophrenia, some of them would name drop specific musicians with this, like the original vocalist of a Canadian death metal band Cataclysm. Uh, he had a schizophrenia. And so it was a real testament, uh, an inspiring sort of facet for these people that they know how much it, it is to struggle with schizophrenia. But then they see this guy, Sylvain, uh, that put out several albums and toured with them for a while, uh, despite having schizophrenia. So it for them, that was very inspiring, very powerful. And it shows them that, like, look, I can accomplish things. I can be uh, a prolific member of the metal community or even in my own society. Like me, myself, I've got a friend that's schizophrenic. He works in a hospital. So uh, these can be active members of society. When we remove the stigma and say, look, you can accomplish what you need to accomplish. You just might have a few more struggles than the rest of us. And then having representation helps them feel that way, that they can accomplish what they need to in life. Another aspect that is special in heavy metal music is the concert experience, which is something that came to a screeching halt with the pandemic. I came across Dr. Messick's name after I read an article about the psychological effect this had on bands that not only enjoy touring and connecting with the fans, but touring might have been their main source of income. As a psychologist, I want to look at behaviors and things, and there's unique behaviors then that we see in the co concert environment. So we've got the cultural sorts of dances like moshing and rituals and uh, uh, crowd surfing. But one of the things I was interested in is, is the pandemic hit. Is uh, Psychology is well aware of the, of the consequences of a pandemic like this. So we've got a lot of anxiety and depression that can develop, especially as we're quarantined for longer periods of time. That can be harder and harder for people. But one of the populations I was particularly concerned about is these individuals that are touring musicians. They're used to being out uh, all, all year long and uh, connecting with large groups of fans all over the world. 
And so for them, uh, when we start putting bans on uh, some of the first places that were shut down in the pandemic were music venues and bars that would host music. Uh, so we, we can't have large gatherings. So this ended concert tours. And we still haven't seen those come back uh, more than a year later. So right after the pandemic hit, and then even a little bit after that, I started interviewing some of these touring musicians that are used to being on the road all the time, and it's important for them. And so how they feel when they're on stage, they, they describe it as the best sort of feeling in the world. Uh, very powerful, uh, lots of positive affect, lots of positive feelings. It can also help them uh, deal with some of their struggles in their lives. So uh, uh, the regular life can feel uh, just, just very draining, whereas this is kind of what gives them meaning. This is the words they gave me. It gives them meaning to be able to play live. And so then some people would talk about, uh, well, uh, not being able to play live, that, that's almost like losing a limb. Uh, I feel like part of me is missing. And so I, I've been uh, concerned about some of these individuals and it's not necessarily just the musicians either. It can be hard on metal fans that are uh, used to going to shows regularly as a, another form of catharsis, a, a form of release of life stress. And then also uh, across the board. So all the people that work on these shows, the bookers, the promoters, uh, everybody involved in stage show, uh, all of this, but the musicians definitely were having a hard time so one of the things is that a lot of income uh, that bands get, most of the income that most bands get is from touring. So suddenly they don't have that income. So uh, a lot of bands, smaller bands in particular, will have day jobs, so they're going to be all right. But for bands that don't have day jobs and aren't like Iron Maiden level, uh, they're gonna, they were taking a financial hit. So then they have got all these other struggles. Music venues, too, a lot of those have been going under because they, they, they're not getting funding without these tours. But then those psychological troubles they have, uh, this this negative affect and not being able to do what makes them feel good. And then uh, one of the people I interviewed was Chris from Internal Bleeding. Uh, he's a guy that's getting up there in age uh, around his 50s. Right. And he said that for him, uh, he plays brutal death metal, a very intense, demanding form of metal. And for him, not being able to play feels like a race against the clock because he doesn't know how long he's going to be able to keep doing what he loves to do because it is so demanding on the body. Uh, so that there's a lot of different layers of struggle that musicians are experiencing right now uh, because they can't do what they love to do. They feel like something in them is missing without being able to do that. And then there's also a lot of anxiety that comes with not knowing when they're going to be able to get back to doing that. There's no promise as to when the world will get back to normal if it ever gets back to normal. So we keep seeing bands booking tours and festivals, all of that costs money. And then it keeps getting delayed. Some of these big music festivals have now been uh, delayed for two years. So they got delayed once and then once again uh, into next year now, uh, 2022. And so it's very hard that we, we've got musicians just on standby craving to do what they love. And so what's that daily struggle like for them uh, dealing with anxiety and depression feeling like they're, they're, they're maybe worthless, not being able to do what they want to do and uh, have more trouble connecting with fans. But the upside to this is that we do see them kind of evolving now. And uh, we, we see more and more bands doing these live concert streams as a way to still try to connect with fans. So it's certainly not the same thing as the live concert experience, but they're, they're trying to make this as legitimate as possible. So some are even con charging uh, ticket prices and even including 
little things like uh, sending them actual concert tickets or, or creating merchandise specifically for this online show. So just more and more trying to make it like what the actual experience was like. And that can help us cope a little bit with uh, until things return back to when we could go to concerts like we used to, both as fans and as musicians. Metal and rock music have been quite controversial in pop culture. I'm sure at one point or another, you would have seen a TV show or a story about metal bands being satanic, and that if your kids are listening to it, they'll be satanic too, and all that fun stuff that was just the 90s way to clickbait. Dr. Messick actually has studied religion and atheism in metal music earlier in his career. When I initially started getting into metal music uh, as a focus of scientific inquiry, I initially emerged it with psychology of religion because that's where my research background was. My, my thesis largely merged the two. Uh, so I initially was just focusing on psych of religion, but I went to an academic conference and someone said, uh, hey, you've been lifelong obsessed with uh, metal music. Why aren't you studying this at all? Why aren't you applying these methods in that context? And that was kind of a, an aha moment for me uh, or, where I really started to think about it and then switched my gears very quickly to look at that. And so largely what I did with my dissertation was looked into this idea of what is sacred to heavy metal music culture, uh, because w there's many powerful aspects to what we consider sacred as transcending what is normal in the world. And so what I looked at in, in my, uh, my thesis, my dissertation for my PhD, was a, a couple different ways that that can manifest. So what are the most sacred objects for people? This is one of the things I looked at. So whether that's record collections or maybe a, a particular record that's very rare, or has a lot of nostalgia for someone, or uh, maybe someone's battle, uh, battle vest. So, so these jackets with band patches all over them, people often hand sew those. So it becomes a very intimate experience to build that over a series of years to say, this is what represents me. And so then I, I, I then uh, did some follow-up studies to talk about these elements of the sacred, including uh, what sort of uh, songs and music are most important to people of different uh, subgenre fans. And so I, I asked some different questions in different studies. One is what psychological functions does uh, do these things fulfill when we consider them sacred? So things like mood maintenance and social relatedness, higher levels of positive affect and being pro-social to other people. Uh, would, would be experienced compared to music that's just liked and enjoyed. So I compared these things. If we really start to start to consider these things as sacred, uh, then, then we have much more powerful psychological functions being fulfilled. And then to really bring this home, I, I looked at, uh, I applied the literature on desecration of the sacred and loss of the sacred. And so I did another study asking, uh, what would it be like to lose uh, I asked this in a few different ways, but what would it be like to lose something that's sacred to you, a sacred metal artifact or something about it? What, what if metal is removed from your life in different ways? And so what I found, even in the, the case of giving them vignettes so about uh, this is a person, they have a very strong bond to this pick that a famous musician gave them, and then it was lost in a move or something like that. How would this person feel? They would say they, they have very high levels of anxiety very high levels of depression. And then I also asked in the terms of desecration, what if this item was somehow destroyed? And then there would also be high levels of anger. And then this goes a bit further too, when I ask people about uh, 
what would it feel in terms of qualitative interviews to lose a, a metal item to you that you consider sacred? And they would say things like, it would be like losing an arm or a leg. Uh, I would feel like a part of myself is missing. And then one of the things we see with what's sacred to people too, is that there can be some things involved in burial with that. So I asked them, what do you want to, this to happen with? Uh, what do you want to happen to this item after you die? And a lot of people would want to be buried with that sacred object. A lot of other people said they, they would want it passed down to a metal fan, often a family member that would find it as important to them as it was to uh, the, the original owner, to they themselves. And then one other thing I looked at, since we're talking about sacred, we're, we're trying to talk about transcendence to something beyond the world. And so one of the other things I looked at was measured if people felt there was something about their sacred objects that could not be explained, that uh, has a mystical element to it. And a lot of people did feel that their objects somehow connected them to the associated musician with it uh, in a, a sort of sacred bond. So uh, a spiritual element to that. Uh, and I asked that in a couple of different ways, too, in terms of also often when we apply this label of sacred, we might think of certain characters as being sacred. So in the context of heavy metal, that might be Tony from Black Sabbath. A lot of people might see him as sacred. So I asked questions about this and a lot of people would describe him in ways that are consistent with an actual God uh, as saying that he has abilities that regular people do not have. And so for the most part, we maybe think of heavy metal as being maybe a more atheistic culture, not across the board. There's all kinds of religions represented in the heavy metal, but uh, there, there seems to still be an element of a mystical sort of experience there, whether that's uh, the, the idea of transcendence. So a lot of people report uh, that when they're at a heavy metal concert, they might experience something beyond the normal world, this idea of transcendence. They'll describe it as a, in terms of a religious experience, even though they, may, they themselves might say, I'm not religious. So we're, we're describing metal icons with some of this religious language. We're, we're saying there's a mystical element to a lot of our most sacred metal possessions. And then also uh, listening to metal and the, the concert experience, uh, a lot of people say can they can experience transcendence. So we've got a lot of kind of religious aspects flowing through metal music culture there. So my background with psychoreligion definitely connects very well with metal because we've got a, a lot of that. And then also with metal, we've got a lot of religious imagery in it too, even though we uh, might think of metal as being like, no, we, we don't want religion in there, but we've got crosses all over the place in metal. We've got uh, sacred symbols, the symbol of the horns uh, with our, our two fingers extended. That's almost like a sacred religious symbol then too that uh, represents the, the, the population. So yeah, there's, there's a lot of different, uh, very subtle, implicit sort of parallels with religion and metal. So it itself is almost like a religion to many people. So yeah. Even though a lot of heavy metal fans would initially reject the idea of religion in their music, it is interesting to see how many of the practices are either drawn from or can be paralleled with religion. I know that it might seem that this episode kind of glorifies heavy metal, but in no shape or form the community is perfect. As any other community on the planet, it has its problems and many things that the community can do better to be more inclusive and help even more people. 
In the context of a podcast, I found interesting to see how a social group like Metalheads can be a subject of academic research, especially in psychology field. I hope that I get to find out more about other communities like that. I'd like to thank Dr. Kyle Messick for his time and willingness to have a chat with me. I'll have links for his work in the description of the show, and I wish best of luck for his future, and our virtual door is always open for him if there are more things in his research that he wishes to discuss. And thank you for sticking around until the end. In the show notes, you'll find ways that you can support me in doing this. An easy way you can support me is by just sharing this episode with a friend. I really appreciate it. Until we meet again, take care, keep learning, and be kind.